0: We're going to read verses 7 through 12. Actually, we'll read through verse 16. Jonah chapter 1, verse 7 through 16. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days, and three nights. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time before we begin. Our Father, we come now to Your Word, and we do so with great expectation because we know that this Word is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. You use it in the power of Your Spirit to pierce our hearts, our conscience, and and our subconscious even. We pray God that You would use it this morning as we look at it, as we read it, as we expound upon it, and understand it together. We pray that You would speak to us, Your people. We come now with that expectation and we ask that You would bless us by the presence of Your Spirit and guide us into truth today, in Jesus' name. Amen. This storm that comes in Jonah chapter 1 could be looked at from two different perspectives. First, we could look at the storm from the perspective of the sailors. Or second, we could look at the storm from the perspective of God. So let's look at it first from the perspective of the sailors. From the sailors' perspective, the storm was a calamity. In fact, they describe it that way twice. In verse 7, Come let us cast lots that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. And then when they identify it as Jonah, the person who is guilty, they said to him in verse 8, Now tell us on whose account has this calamity struck us? To them it was a disaster, and it was a disaster of the first order. They're out on the sea in their ship, and their boat and something supernatural has come upon them. They understand that this is not a normal weather pattern. This is not a normal event. Something phenomenal is going. And as the storm continues to increase in its, uh, in its uh, fearsomeness and in its intensity, they know that the ship is going to break up unless it abates a little bit or something happens to avert this disaster. They have prayed to their God. They have thrown all of their cargo overboard, and they are at their wit's end. They have no other options. Their back is against the wall, and it seems that they have no out. So from their perspective, this is a calamity. This is a disaster. All of their livelihood on this leg of the voyage has been totally jettisoned and thrown overboard, down to the bottom of the sea. And they have nothing left but the ship and their own lives. And from their perspective, it looks like they're about to lose bull. But then stop and look at the storm from God's perspective for a second. Who's in control of the storm? Who hurled the wind to begin with? God did. He rules the waves. He rules the seas. He controls the storm. He controls the wind. He has brought all of this upon Jonah and upon the crew. And though the storm is an expression of God's anger, His displeasure toward Jonah... It is more than just an expression of His displeasure. It is actually an expression of His love. Because the storm is God pursuing His disobedient and rebellious prophet. The storm is the chastening hand of God. It is God's disciplining hand. And every time that God disciplines His wayward children, it is always motivated by love. It is not as if the Lord is trying His best to kill Jonah. And he's out there angry like some ravaging Greek god throwing lightning bolts and hurling thunder and wind trying to kill this prophet. That's not the picture at all. God through His providence and through His sovereignty is orchestrating all of these events. The wind, the wave, the seas, even a great fish that He has prepared. All of it He has orchestrated to accomplish His purpose. All of it He has brought against Jonah for the purpose of backing Jonah into a corner backing Him up against the wall and making Him face reality. And it is a loving storm. Now, all God's discipline that is intended to pursue us is loving. And by the way, god that's how you got saved to begin with. God pursued you. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. That was you. You didn't find Jesus. Jesus found you. You were the one that was lost. And God pursued you and He hounded you. And some of you could probably tell stories of being backed into a corner and facing one adversity and one difficulty after another until God got your attention to the point where you had to look up and you realized that you had to bow your knee to a sovereign God. That was a loving pursuit. And all of the adversity that came into your life that brought you to Christ was loving adversity. And all adversity that disciplines us or chastens us is for our good, and it's loving adversity, it's loving discipline. And if it is God who has brought us to Himself, and if it is God who has secured us, and if it is Jesus who has promised that He will never let us go, and He will never let anything come between us and the love of God, then He will also do everything in His power to sanctify us, and to bring us and to make us complete and more like Christ, all the way until the day of Christ Jesus. He will complete the work that He has begun in us. And one of the ways that He does that is through loving discipline. Now, Hebrews says, and we read it for the Scripture reading, No discipline seems pleasurable for the present, does it? No child enjoys a whooping, at least not one in his right mind. No child enjoys discipline. No child enjoys a spanking. But a loving parent understands that those things are necessary in order to deal with disobedience and rebellion. It is the same thing with God's discipline. No discipline that we go through is ever pleasant when we're going through it. But Hebrews says it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Because behind all discipline is God's desire that we would be more fruitful, more productive, more blessed, more obedient, more in line with His will, and more usable to Him. And so He disciplines us for that purpose. Because sin is like a cancer. It is a putrid, vile infection, abscess on the soul. And God, like a good surgeon, knows that He has to cut that out of us. And no cutting ever feels pleasant when you're cut, does it? But you know that if you're going to be well, that it is necessary to let the surgeon cut out of you what he needs to cut out of you to bring about the well-being and the peace that he desires that you enjoy. And it's the same thing with discipline. Look, behind the storm is a loving God saying, Jonah, just be obedient and you'll understand the blessing. Just be obedient and you'll bring blessing to others. Just be obedient and you'll be useful to me. That's God's perspective on the storm. Now last week we looked at verses 4 through 6 and we saw that from God's perspective, God is the cause of the storm. Today we're looking at verses 7 through 12 and we're going to see that from the human perspective, Jonah is the cause of the storm. Now let me ask you, who's, who's the reason for the storm? It's both Jonah and it's God, isn't it? That's the theological sort of quandary. From God's perspective, He's the one who has brought this. He has caused this. It's not just some freak occurrence of nature. But from the human perspective, the reason for it is Jonah. And that's what the sailors want to find out. From our perspective, who is behind this? So in verses 4-6, to we looked at the storm that God caused the storm. We saw the three reactions to the storm. We saw the sailors' reaction. They were fearful. They called out to their gods for deliverance. That didn't help them any. Then they threw all their cargo overboard. Then we looked at Jonah's reaction and in his sense of sin-induced slumber and slothfulness and indifference, he is asleep in the midst of the storm, totally indifferent to what's going on around him, probably not caring about his own safety or the safety of anybody else, totally exhausted by his conscience and running from God. Then we looked at the captain's response to the storm, which was to go down and shake Jonah awake and say, Jonah, get up and call on your God. Maybe He will have the power to have mercy on us and we won't perish. Now today we're going to look at the sailor's discovery of who is behind this. From God's perspective, it was he who caused the storm. Now from the human perspective, who is the one guy on board this boat who is behind this? The sailors don't know. So we're going to see in verses 7 through 9, the sailor's discovery. Then in verses 10 through 12, the sailor's distress. And then next week we will look at their dilemma. And we will look at their deliverance, and that'll help wrap up chapter one. So today, the sailor's discovery, and then their distress. Look at verses seven through nine. Each man said to his mate, "Come on, let us, come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us." Now we understand because we're third-person readers, and we weren't there. We we know who's behind it, don't we? It's Jonah. We know that, but they don't know that yet. They don't know that Jonah is running from God yet. He hasn't said anything. He just showed up like your average voyager. Paid his fare, went down, got into his cabin, picked out his hammock, put his stuff underneath of his hammock, crawled in to go to sleep. He's just one of a hundred faces that they'd probably seen on this journey. He's just one of perhaps a multitude of people on board the ship. He's just another face in the crowd to them. They have no idea that he's a Jew. They have no idea what's behind this. They don't know the backstory, but they need to find out. And so they say, let's cast lots and see on whose account this calamity. Look at that word. This calamity has struck us. Interesting word. It's been used one other time in the book of Jonah already. It's used in verse 2, and this is ironic. I told you there's a lot of irony in in the book of Jonah. Here's another point of irony. The same word translated calamity in verse 7 is translated wickedness in verse 2. Go to Nineveh and cry out against that city, for their wickedness has come up before me. And here in verse 7, that same word is used to describe the storm. This calamity, we want to find out on whose account this disaster, in verse 2 it's used in a moral sense of a moral disaster, here it's used in a physical sense of a physical disaster, a calamity, has come upon us. Now here's the irony of it. Those words had to have rung in Jonah's ears with a little, at least a little sense of familiarity. Oh yeah, I've heard that word before. It was used to describe the wickedness of Nineveh coming up before God. God said, go cry out to Nineveh because of its wickedness. And now here is Jonah... The cause of wickedness. The cause of calamity Himself. In fact, it was His running from the city of Nineveh that brought this calamity on them. And why did Jonah run away from Nineveh? He didn't want to go and talk to them about their calamity, their wickedness. And now he's the, now He is the cause of this very same wickedness. And as Jonah listens to the words of these sailors, he has to be thinking to himself, how ironic that I now am the cause of this wickedness coming up before God. And this storm is evidence of my own wickedness. When Nineveh's wickedness came up before God and I was called to go cry out and I wouldn't do it, and now here I am in the midst of wickedness and now I deserve God's judgment. And listen, here's the ironic thing. You know what Jonah's prayer would have been? Lord, let Your justice rain down on the earth. Why was he running from Nineveh? Because he did not want grace to be shown to wicked pagan idolaters. He wanted justice to be given to them. Lord, because of their wickedness, they deserve justice. I'm not going to go preach, because if I go preach, they'll repent. And if they repent, you'll show them kindness. I don't want you showing them grace. I'm fine if you show me grace. I want them to see your justice. I want them to see your judgment. So Lord, let your judgment rain down upon Nineveh. And now Jonah finds himself in the crosshairs of that same judgment, right? For what? For his own wickedness. How ironic. Isn't that true? You and I, oftentimes, we want grace for ourselves and judgment for somebody else. It's what we desire, right? The co-worker, the family member who's wronged us, the uncle that borrowed 500 bucks and hasn't returned it back. Lord, let Your justice rain down on them. We pray the imprecatory psalms toward these people. Without any compassion whatsoever, bust their teeth, rip out their arms, and beat them over the head with it, Lord. Let their blood pour out upon the earth and destroy Your enemies. That's what we want, oftentimes. But how ironic it is when we find ourselves in the crosshairs of God's judgment, right? And if judgment really did fall, who would get it? Well, we would if it weren't for Christ. We would if it weren't for the grace of God shown to us. That's the irony of that. Jonah wanted the judgment to come, but not on himself, on Nineveh. So they say, verse 7, Let us cast lots. Come let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. We want to find a guy who has angered his God. Something has... Something has cast the whole universe out of balance. That's how a New Ager would say it today. Something has put the whole universe in a state of imbalance, and we need to find out on whose account this has happened. Something supernatural is going on. We need to identify the guy who has, who has wronged his God and brought the anger of his God upon him and thus us. So they start to cast lots. It sort of was a common Old Testament practice. What they would do in those days is they had little dye or colored stones, often multi-sided stones like we would have dye, Sometimes they were made out of the bones of animals and they would do these for gaming. They would also use them in a lot of different religions, not just even in Judaism, to determine the will of God or to identify things. For instance, we read of the land being divided in the book of Joshua, chapter 15, by lot. They cast lots to divide the land and they understood and they believed that God was sovereign over the casting of lots, that you throw up the dice, God makes the spots come up, as Donald Gray Barnhouse used to say, that God was in charge of that and so he would use that to direct their hands in dividing up the land by lot. Do you remember Achan and his sin? And what did they do? They want to find out who among the millions of us is responsible for this calamity. So they began to cast lots and they narrowed it down by tribe and then by family and then by Achan's dad and then to Achan himself and his family and they identified the one responsible for it through the casting of lots. 1 Samuel 4 something, it's in there, for Samuel. You'll read that David or Saul had given a command and taken an oath, and Jonathan had violated the king's command, even unknowingly. And then when the Lord was silent and wouldn't speak and didn't utter His will to Saul, they wanted to find out, why is God being silent? So they cast lots, and it came down to between Saul and Jonathan. They cast lots, and it turned out it was Jonathan. They identified Jonathan's sin. They all did all that through the casting of lots. So it was done in the Old Testament. They, had, they believed that God was sovereign over the casting of lots. And here's how they would do it. We actually get a clue as to how they would do it. Proverbs 16.33 says the lot is cast into the lap, but the Lord determines the outcome. So what they would do in those days, they had the long robes and they would squat down and spread their knees and create sort of a little cloth table in their lap and they would cast dice or lots into the lap, the dice. The lot is cast into the lap, but the Lord determines the outcome. That's Proverbs 16.33. And that's how they would cast lots. It's done in the Old Testament. Can you think of one time it was done in the New Testament? It is done in the New Testament. It's in Acts chapter 1 when the apostles are trying to determine who is it that's going to take Matthias's place. Now, I was really debating this week, should we deal with the subject of should you and I be casting lots today to determine God's will, right? Should we be doing that? Is that a valid practice, a valid way of discerning the will of God today? Should we cast lots to determine who's the pastor next week? Should we cast lots to determine who the elders are going to be? Should we cast lots in that way? Um, We actually dealt with that when we were in Acts chapter 1, and I realized that was just very recently. And so I hate to kind of go over old territory all over again, but there may have been one or two of you here that weren't here for Acts 1, so we'll cover it. Acts chapter 1, it was a very legitimate practice. And I don't want any of you By the way, starting off your day tomorrow casting lots. Have your boss call you at 8.30 in the morning. Where are you? Well, I tried to determine today whether I should come into work and so I rolled the die and I said, odd, i stay home. Even numbers, I come into work. It turned up odd numbers. It's the will of God for me to stay home. So I'm home today. I don't know about tomorrow. I'll cast the die and I'll call you and let you know. Have a great day. Bye-bye. I don't want any of you doing that. Or trying to determine which one of your children left the lights on in the bathroom by rolling the die. If it's a girl, it was an even number. If it's a boy, it's an odd number. We'll roll the die and find out and narrow it down. Should we be doing that today? In the book of Acts, I argued in Acts chapter 1, it is a legitimate, was a legitimate practice for them. That's how spiritual leaders did what they did. And the apostles believed God was sovereign and that He was going to use the lots to determine who should take Judas's place. That was a standard Old Testament practice. It was a standard way for them to do that. I believe it was the will of God for them to do that. I believe that Matthias was God's man for the job and that Case It's not criticized anywhere in the New Testament that they did that and chose Matthias. But now the question becomes, should we be doing it today, you and I? And the answer to that is no. Why not? Because there is absolutely, and this is essential, no recorded instance of casting of lots after the coming of the Spirit of God. In Acts chapter 1, it was still before Pentecost. That's still an Old Testament dispensation. These are still Old Testament leaders, so to speak. But when the Spirit of God comes, the New Testament teaches, now we have everything with the indwelling of the Spirit of God and the Word of God revealed to us. We have everything that we need to make a decision. We have everything that we need. There is no decision in my life that I have ever faced, no matter how important, that I have ever needed a special revelation from God, a Word from God other than the Scriptures, or to cast lots in order to make a decision. Because the Word of God is sufficient. And the Spirit of God is sufficient. You don't see anywhere else in the book of Acts that the apostles ever cast lots. And they faced dozens of crucial decisions in the book of Acts. Paul didn't cast lots to say, should I go to Jerusalem or not on his way back? He didn't cast lots to determine if He should take up an offering. He didn't cast lots to determine who the elders in the city were going to be. They didn't cast lots to identify deacons. They didn't do any of that because they believed with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. They had everything that they needed to make a decision. And so do you and I. So do you cast lots tomorrow morning? Nope. Don't do it. And if you do it, don't blame it on me. It's your own folly. And you get to bear it. We don't cast lots today. But the sailors, they cast lots to find out On whose account has this calamity struck us? And the lot, Jonah says, fell on Jonah. The lot fell on Jonah. Now, who do you think is sovereign over the casting of these lots? You know what's interesting to me? What's interesting to me is how silent Jonah is until the lot lands on him. That, I think, is telling. Because when the sailors said, let's cast lots to see on whose account this calamity has struck us, (laughs) Jonah knew, right? He wasn't sitting there thinking, oh yeah, this will be interesting. Let's see on whose account this calamity has struck us. Let's see if it's really me because I have this haunting suspicion that it just might be me that's at the center of this. But we'll just sit back and maybe with the rocking of the boat, the lots won't come up quite like they would normally and it'll sort of skew the results a little bit and maybe somebody else will get pinned for this and get thrown overboard. Maybe I will skate through. No, Jonah knew. He knew that God was sovereign over this. He knew what God was going to do. And as that process of elimination went on, as people were eliminated from contention for the guilt of this whole episode, Jonah is silent until it lands on him. And he could have at the beginning of it said, look boys, let me save you a lot of time and trouble. It's me. I'm the one. I'm the guilty man. The whole thing is my fault. He could have come clean in the beginning, but he didn't. He waited until the lot landed on him. Before he finally said, okay, I am your man. And that's an indication to me, by the way, that Jonah was not even interested in repenting all the way up until the casting of the law. I still don't think he was repentant even when they identified him. And I'll show you why in a bit. But until his hand is forced, Jonah doesn't come clean with anything. He's sitting in the back watching this whole thing unfold. Could have saved him a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of attention to detail, all of that. But he just sits there and waits until it lands on him. And Jonah knew that God is sovereign. And this is a good point to make. This is a good opportunity to make a point that I know you already understand. And that is that there is no such thing as chance or luck in the, in the sovereignty and providence of God. For you as a believer. Disease doesn't hit you by chance. Death doesn't come your way knocking by luck, by fortune. Those things don't exist. Chance doesn't exist. Fortune doesn't exist. Luck doesn't exist. Those terms are totally meaningless to an informed child of God. God doesn't leave the display of His glory and the accomplishment of His purpose and the administration of His kingdom up to luck. He doesn't do that. He sovereignly rules over all things. And He sovereignly and in His providence orchestrates all events and uses them all for our good and for His own glory. There's no such thing as chance or luck or fortune or misfortune in your life. Everything comes to you as a result of God's predetermined purpose. And He allows it for a reason. So the lot lands on Jonah, and look at verse 8. And they said to him, Tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us. Now, they know that at least Jonah is able to identify whose account the calamity struck us, and it's not that they're doubting the casting of the lots. They have identified Jonah, and I think they're giving Jonah an opportunity to come clean. Alright, you, you, you confess. Tell us what all of this is about. Whose account? Yours? Somebody with you? Traveling companion? The, the mouse in your pocket? Who's, who's responsible for all of this calamity coming upon us? Verse 8. On whose account has the calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Just a barrage of questions. You notice that? Well, if you're holding on to the railing of a ship as it's lurching and tossing and turning in the sea, you don't have a chance to sit there and say, let's have a sip of coffee and we'll discuss what's going on. They begin to fire questions at Jonah Like you would expect panicked men on board a ship about to break apart begin to fire questions at him. And it kind of creates the picture that you don't even imagine Jonah having the ability to begin to answer one question before another one's nailed at him. On whose account is this calamity? What is your occupation? Where are you from? Who are your people? What are you doing on board the ship? They're firing the questions at him. So Jonah answers. Verse 9, he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Hebrew was a way of the Jews refer to themselves in foreign context amongst foreigners because that's how foreigners referred to Jews as the Hebrews. So he says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the God of heaven. The God of heaven is a phrase that was used, I think, intentionally by Jonah to indicate his God as opposed to a Phoenician God. These are likely Phoenician sailors. Phoenicians had a God called Baal-Shamem. And Baal-Shamem meant Lord of heaven. Jonah identifies his God as the God of heaven, I think, in order to contrast it with the Phoenician God who is known as Baal Shemem, the Lord of Heaven. It is as if Jonah is saying, my God is the God of Heaven, not your God. The God that I worship is the only God and the idols that you have fabricated are idols of men's making and men's mind and they're useless and they're powerless because my God is the God. And since I am in a Hebrew, I come from Israel, and I come from the people of God, and my God is the God of heaven, and I fear the God who made the heavens and the earth, who made the sea and who made the dry land. Now, there's something odd in Jonah's confession. It's the word fear. Now, if you're a Phoenician, you're listening to this on board that ship, what are you thinking? You know what I'm thinking to myself? Fear? You fear the God of heaven? Really? Really? Then tell me, Jonah, what are you doing on board this ship? If you really feared the God of heaven, wouldn't you be in Nineveh right now? How can you fear the God of heaven and run from His will straight into the face of what you knew had to be coming calamity? There's a lot of fearing going on on board the ship, Jonah, and none of it is coming from you. You don't fear the storm. You don't fear God. That's why you ran from Him. You're sleeping in the belly of the ship because you don't fear the storm. And he obviously doesn't fear death because he says, you're going to have to throw me overboard. I'm going to have to die before the storm is going to relent. The irony of it is that these sailors feared Jonah's God more than Jonah feared his God. Because verse 10 says what? They were frightened. There's a lot of fearing going on, but it's not Jonah who fears the maker of the sea and the dry land. And by the way, when Jonah says, I fear the God who made the sea... I would have been saying to myself, that's that's the one we want, that God. That's the one we need to be talking to, the one that made the sea and the dry land. And we want that God, too, because we're hoping to see some of that real soon. So we have identified the right God. We need to be dealing with the God who made the sea and the dry land. Both of those things are essential. So now you tell us about your God. Jonah didn't fear God. He didn't fear God at all. That's the reason for his sin. Listen, if you ever get to the point where you don't fear your conscience... You don't fear loss of reward. You don't fear consequences. You don't fear shame. You don't fear the wrath and the discipline of God. You don't fear even death itself. You have come to a very dangerous place. And you know why? Because there is no sin you will not commit. When you do not fear God, you have removed all of the barriers. And there is no sin that you are not willing to indulge in if you ever get to the point where you do not fear. That's where Jonah is at. He didn't fear his conscience, and he truly did not fear God. There's nothing theologically wrong with Jonah's confession. I mean, it identifies who God is, that He is the creator of the earth and the heavens and the sea and the dry land, that He's the maker of all things, He rules in heaven, He is the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords over every idol, over every people. He's the one true God. Very theologically orthodox confession, but you know what Jonah's problem was? He didn't believe it, really. He wasn't practicing it. He wasn't living it. He says he feared, but he really didn't fear You know another point of irony in the story? Jonah is on board this ship because he did not want to go to pagan, idol-worshipping, heathens, Gentiles, and tell them about the God of Israel. Now he's on board the ship, and what is he doing? (laughs) He's got these pagan, idol-worshipping, heathen Gentiles saying, Jonah, tell us about your God, and now he has to preach to them. Isn't that ironic? The very thing that Jonah was trying his hardest to avoid. And he sinned and rebelled and he thought, I'll get away from it by going this way. And he went around it. And you know what he ended up finding? Right back at the crossroads again. And now he is faced with having to explain to these pagan, Gentile, idol worshippers who his God is and what his God has done. Well, that's the, soul the sailor's discovery. They discover that it's Jonah. Now look at the sailors' distress, beginning in verse 10. Then the men became extremely frightened. It seems to be that they were just frightened before this. Now they are extremely frightened. They are double frightened. Why are they double frightened now? Do you think that they had heard of Jonah's God before? Their well-traveled, well-seasoned sailors had stopped in at Joppa on the coast of the Mediterranean, had probably talked to dozens if not hundreds of Jews who had made trips with them before, they are they familiar with all of the gods of all of the peoples. They are familiar with their idols. They have heard the stories of the Egyptian gods. They've heard the stories of the Israelites' god. They have heard the stories of all these different nations and their gods. They know what the Jews believe their god is capable of doing. And when Jonah says, I serve the god who made the seas, I am a Hebrew, my god is Yahweh. My god is Jehovah. Those sailors would say, we we know of that god. We have heard of that god. He's the one who parted the Red Sea, Right? He's the one who parted the Jordan River, right? He's the one who drowned Pharaoh's armies, right? That God is the God. So now they begin to fear. Now they're doubly frightened. They are extremely frightened. And they say to Jonah, How could you do this? How could you do this? I fear the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. I am the one who is responsible for this calamity. And the sailors say, How in the world could you do this? Don't you think that that little piece of information would have come in real handy before we threw all of our cargo overboard? It's just a little bit late. Thanks for offering. But how could you do this? How could you do this to yourself? How could you do this to us? How could you do this to our business, to our ship? How could you flee from your God? Martin, in his commentary on the book of Jonah, describes how that question would have haunted Jonah just in hearing it. How could you leave your God? How could you flee from Him? How could you sin against Him like this? Did you find a worthier portion? Did you find a God who was more worthy of your obedience and your trust? Did you pay up to Him all that you owe Him for His kindness to you? Did you find that He wasn't strong enough? Did your God cross you in some way? Have you found Him to be unfaithful? Have you found Him to be Uh, 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 unfruitful to you? Have you found Him to lack in His blessings to you? And isn't that the exact same question you ask yourself when you sin? You finally come to your senses. You say, how could I do this? How could I do this? What was I thinking? What kind of senselessness is sin? What kind of senselessness is rebellion? And every time I find myself caught in that position, that's what I say to myself. How could I do this? I wasn't right. I I have no rational, no reasonable... No logical reason or excuse for doing what I have done. The same thing with you every time you sin. Same thing with me every time we sin. How could you do this? It would have haunted Jonah. So Jonah says in verse 11, or verse 10 says, the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. That is, he told them up in verse 9. Verse 9 only gives us part of Jonah's response. Verse 10 indicates that after he told them, I serve or fear the God of heaven, the creator of the sea and the dry land, that he was also telling them, I'm fleeing and running from this God, which is why I'm on board the ship. Verse 11, they said to him, What should we do to you so that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. Now the sailors, they did not want to cross Jonah's God, right? So they want to follow proper protocol. What do we have to do for you, to you? Do we offer a sacrifice? Do we throw you overboard? Do we kill you? Do we cut your throat? Do we offer you as a sacrifice? What do we have to do to get your God off of our back? That's the essence behind their question. You tell us what the proper protocol is in dealing with your God. Because we're unfamiliar with Him. We don't know what He expects of us. And they certainly don't want to handle this situation according to their own judgments and do something with Jonah that would make Jonah's God angry with them. Because if this is what Jonah's God is going to do to them when he's angry with Jonah, the last thing that they want is for that same God to be angry with them. So they're asking Jonah, what are we going to do to you or for you in order that your God will preserve us? That the storm may stop. That the sea may become calm. Because the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. So Jonah says in verse 12, he said to them, pick up, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. Pick me up and toss me overboard. Now, some people read those words, commentators, and they say, what Jonah is really doing there is he is showing his compassion for that shipload of of sailors. He is saying to them, you throw me overboard, the sea will become calm. In other words, it's sort of a a martyr-like way of saying, sacrifice me and you will be safe. If you want safety then throw me overboard. I'm willing to die in order for you to be safe. is concerned about the, the life, the safety, and the welfare of the sailors. You think that's what's going on? I don't think it's what's going on. Jonah's not concerned with 120,000 idol-worshipping Gentiles in the city of Nineveh. That's why he's on board the ship. You think he's concerned about his boatload full of sailors? Not at all. I think this is the essence of Jonah's statement. I think is saying to them, the only way the sea is going to become calm for you is if you and I somehow part ways. But you see, we're all on board this ship together. And I'm going down. And the only way you're not going down is if you throw me overboard. If Jonah was really willing to sacrifice himself for the sailors, why didn't he jump overboard? But he doesn't jump overboard. You know why? He's staying on board that ship and he is willing to bring down the whole shipload full of sailors, if need be, as long as he can be disobedient. He is that unconcerned for their welfare. He doesn't jump overboard. You know what Jonah could have said? Jonah could have said, look, if you repent of your sin, I'm repenting of my sin, we'll all turn to Jehovah together. We'll become obedient together and obey His Word and then the storm will relent. But Jonah doesn't say that. Or Jonah could have said, look, it's on my account that this whole thing has come upon us. If we just turn the ship around, we'll go back to Joppa, I'll get off and I'll go to Nineveh and you'll be safe. Just turn the boat around. But Jonah doesn't say that. What does he say? (laughs) You're going to have to throw me overboard. Now that can be arranged, right? It's us against you. You're one guy. We're a crew full of sailors. That can be arranged. The irony of it is that they don't want to throw Jonah overboard. You see next week that they begin to row, row passionately to get back to shore They, these pagan idol-worshipping Gentiles, are not willing to sacrifice one man to save their neck. And Jonah is willing to sacrifice a whole shipload full of them to persist in his disobedience. The early church father, Chrysostom, said, Sin brings the soul into much senselessness. That's true. Sin brings the soul into much senselessness. It blinds us, it pollutes us, distorts our perspective, it tears our heart, it darkens our conscience, it numbs our affections, it makes us so hardened in our own hearts that we would be willing to die rather than to obey. You say, is it possible for a Christian to get to a point where their heart is so hardened they would rather die than obey God? And the answer to that question is yes, it is possible. It happens all the time. And you know how it happens? When we take one step west instead of east. That's how it happened with Jonah. Go east. And Jonah went west. And by the time he's out in the middle of the Mediterranean, his heart is so hardened, he would rather die than obey. And not only that, he would rather die and take a boatload of people with him than obey. Sin brings the soul into much senselessness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You have delivered us from our sin. Even though it ravages us and stays with us, even though it is a present reality for all of us, You give us the victory and You deliver us from the power of sin. We thank You, Father, that You continue that sanctifying work. And we ask today that You would give to us the grace to hate sin when we see it in ourselves, to deal with it in the way that You have, have given us to deal with it, that is through confession and repentance and restoration with You. We pray, Father, that you would preserve us and strengthen us, give us the grace to fight the fight against sin, to wage war against sin in our members and in our own body, that we might be holy and walk holy, and we know that it is in in those days and in those ways that you bless us, and that you turn us to yourself, and we thank you that you chasten us. We thank you that you do discipline us. We thank you mostly that you do not let us go, and you do not let us have our way in sin. It only costs us and it costs us obedience, among other things. So we ask, Father, that you would sanctify us as your people and use your word to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org.